0: Welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. Here we are again in Sundsvall, Sweden, celebrating Tactical Trauma 2019. And we really have to give a hat tip to Dr. Fredrik Granholm, as well as the organizing committee, because he has turned this into one of the premier trauma operations conferences in Europe, with over 400 attendees and a sold-out waiting list of more than 200 people. The faculty that he has gathered is really top-notch, several of which whom are in this room and are going to be participating with us on our Wrap Up Cop podcast.
1: Hey, my name is Mike Loria. I'm an emergency medicine resident at the University of New Mexico and a retrieval physician there. Mike Abernathy. I'm a flight
2: physician and professor of emergency medicine at the University of Wisconsin.
3: Hi, I'm Kate Pryor. I am an anaesthetist in the Royal Navy. That's the British Navy, for those who don't speak English. <laughs> and I'm Dr. Wimmel on Twitter.
4: Hi, I'm Mark Forrest. I'm an anaesthetist, intensivist, in Hemstock from the UK.
5: Hi, Leilani Doyle. I'm an anaesthesiologist in the Canadian Armed Forces and Twitter handle at Doyle
0: So one of the first sessions of the morning was especially intriguing. And as an EMS medical director, I value the forethought and planning for mass gathering exercises, but Jeff Yost is a paramedic from Las Vegas, and he was actually off-duty and participating with his ambulance agency at the Country Music Festival in 2018 when he inadvertently stepped into the largest civilian active shooter of all time, and that was a harrowing experience.
2: Yeah, I found it was really interesting hearing you know, he's a trained paramedic, but yet, you know, an immediate bystander. His initial reaction to it, and again, he gravitated towards the raid station and described how, you know, at a concert like that, they're set up for dehydration, bumps and bruises, you know, absolutely nothing for severe trauma. And, you know, describes, you know, the situation. They did not know initially, you know, where things were coming for the, from. There was mass panic. It talks about how, you know, they tried to get some of their casualties out of there, but it was you know, they had some severely injured people for over 45 minutes. But um, but again, I you know I've read some accounts, but hearing it first person was really intriguing.
5: I think, like most uh, incidences, you 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 know comms seems to be the the common issue. Comms always fails. That's been my experience in military settings, so that wasn't surprising. But what the lesson I got from him was to assign a civilian uh, bystander to each patient because there were plenty of civilians willing to help. And that meant that there was at least someone on every patient and they could come to you and tell you whether the patient deteriorated or not. But you didn't have to um, be uh, eyes on everyone, that you could use the civilian assets that that came forward to help to, to great effect.
0: I think that was a great point. It's just because of the nature of the country music festival. There were a large number of EMTs, nursing staffs, paramedics, Other um, hospital care providers that were able, willing, and ready to provide support in this incredibly chaotic situation.
3: Well, I think the thing, I mean, that started the day off with a theme that has carried right through a lot of the talks, which is how much bystanders can do and how much they can get involved in major incidents. And I thought what was really interesting was the discussions around how do we empower them and how do we train them to help us as medics out when the very worst happens.
4: I think that was a really important message, as you say, that's gone through the day, and particularly from that session where the majority of us, with all our equipment, our training, our resources, we're not going to be there, and we're not going to be there for quite some time. It may not just be the normal minutes response, it may be hours, as we saw later in the day at some of the other talks, and then the other big thing was the resources, as you say, Mike, the fact that they were not geared up at all for major trauma in any way.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating point that we may as well bring up now is, you know, certainly throughout the day, Claire Park in her talk regarding the London terrorist attacks was also referencing this concept of an immediate threat vacuum. So it may be a significant amount of time before uh, first responders are able to access the medical victims. And whether you call that care under fire or operating in the hot zone, whether it's, you know, TC3 or you know, the rescue task force, those are concepts that remain ambiguous in pre-hospital
1: and out-of-hospital response and an opportunity for improvement. I think that's one of the, the vacuums in civilian response to a lot of these major incidents is that in the military, we train the, the success, the primary success of tactical combat casualty care is that everybody is trained to do it, whether you're a cook or you're an infantryman whether you're the lowest ranking or the highest ranking, everybody does it. So everybody can be a responder. And therefore that vacuum that um, that Claire so, um, so in- eloquently explained in those events is essentially automatically filled by everybody around you. And we just don't have that in the civilian environment. So I think it was started out in... In Jeff's talk, Mark mentioned it in his um, talk about hemorrhage control. Claire echoed it, and it was sprinkled throughout a lot of other presentations, up to and including the Homeboy transfer or the Homeboy ambulance network, the Homeboy ambulance network of people Mm -hmm. who are not medically trained, able to provide a a fundamental and very important role in a very time-sensitive pathology. So.
4: I think the thing that really struck me about Claire's presentation was the, the way they'd managed to analyze the incidents, the exercises and the real incidents. And for the first time, you see real timelines for casualties, even in, even in the exercises. And you could quite clearly see there was evidence there that people were not surviving because of the current protocols.
0: Could you describe her work a little bit more? So she's certainly a lieutenant colonel in the British military, and she works as a consultant for London's Air Ambulance. But nevertheless, she was motivated to really study these types of disaster responses further in a systematic and rigorous fashion that I think few have done in our industry.
4: Yeah, I mean, she, she's been very fortunate in terms of the fact she's been able to get um, real data on, on, on the specifics of the casualties, post-mortem data. But then also, as we say in the exercises, she's managed to get access at an early stage. She's not been just a, an observer. She's managed to establish casualties that have got specific wounds and they are going to deteriorate unless managed and they mm-hmm. will die after certain periods. And then being able to subsequently analyze that—that that was so powerful. There is real data that shows what we're doing is probably wrong.
2: Yeah, that's happening more and more. I remember recently reading a, a review of the the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. The response there, and there, there's questions. They think there's probably 13 casualties who died in the building mm-hmm. because of you know again, it's decisions being made by command. You know, do we send medics in? Do we treat these people? But they think, you know, 13 people, you know, died because of, not improper, again, under the heat of battle, you do what you have to do. But it's interesting, now they're looking more and more at these disasters. You know, it's hard enough to criticize people who respond to these things, but to take it in a non-critical way and to learn from it. Because 10 years ago, if you would do something like this, I really think people would respond in a negative manner. It's like, how dare you do that to these heroes? Mm -hmm. And they did the best they could. Well maybe it's not the best and maybe we can learn from it.
0: One of the inherent challenges of an out hospital response is that you literally have to be prepared for any type of incident that may occur. And so not all hot zones are created equal. The hot zone of an active shooter incident is very different from a hot zone of a CBRN event. So there is no direct correlation or right way to do things. And it really is dependent on whether you're in an urban environment, suburban or rural, And how integrated your response uh, network and framework is presenting to these types of incidents.
3: And there was a very interesting line, I can't remember who said it, about how terrorists are getting ever more diabolical. You know, they are learning from the emergency services response to incidents and building on that. Uh, For example, it was Mike Klumpner's talk talking about using fire as a weapon. and, And the sort of terrorist training journals almost on on how the police respond to certain types of incidents. I mean, that's just horrifying.
0: Yeah, the propaganda out there on the internet is actually horrifying in a way. Um, in fact, when I uh, heard Mike speak last a couple of years ago at the World Trauma Symposium, that inspired my talk for tomorrow, Intentional Vehicular Assault. When you have these types of lone wolves who are, you know, figuring out or publicizing the way to inflict maximum carnage on soft targets it really pauses or gives you some concern on how exactly you're going to protect the populace from these types of incidents.
4: I think the other thing that was coming out of all the mass casualty stuff as well was the big question mark over triage. We have got so drilled into, you know, sieve and SORT and suddenly we're looking at live or dead or even and another alternative, is was obviously just experienced eyes, just looking around the room and saying, this one's going first, this one's going second. Uh, and that's not what's happening at the moment.
0: Now, experience is something that comes over time, but it's also something that we can train deliberately. And next up, we had none other than Mike Gloria talk about emergency reflex action drills. And the concept here is we fight like we train and train like we fight, but how exactly can we adapt the way we train so we optimize not only our personal response, but our patient's
1: outcomes? Yes, this was kind of an interesting topic and something I've been looking into recently because I've noticed that in both the military setting, in the aviation setting, and a lot of different settings, people have uh, learned very quickly that there are times to think and analyze things very carefully and there are times when you just need to act immediately. And uh, focusing specifically on those very, very time-sensitive scenarios where you have to act immediately, I think it's very interesting how we train people in other high-risk occupations to to do that. And uh, I think there's a lot of room for improvement on the medical side in terms of when we train people to do it and how we train people to do it. And I think that's definitely a target of opportunity, so...
0: Now, you had three specific steps, Mike, for people
1: to develop their own ERADS.
0: Can you yeah. walk us through that?
1: Um, so, basically, for me, the step one is basically identifying very time-sensitive things that need to be addressed immediately. So, for example, massive exsanguination from an extremity injury. For me, personally, one of the ones that I've been developing is my response to a difficult airway or a grade three or a grade four view once you get the mm-hmm. laryngoscope in somebody's mouth. So, identifying the problem. And then the second step is actually looking through the literature and coming up with things that we know at least work reasonably well, and if there's no literature available, at least things that anecdotally seem to work very well. And then ingraining those series of steps so that you do them essentially automatically. So when... You're confronted with something that triggers a reflex action or series of actions that you run through very, very quickly to sort of empirically address those problems. And I think those things work very well for other high-risk occupations because we know that functionally what your brain can do is limited when you're stressed out. So I see a lot of times when people get in these positions and they're stuck trying to think about what a solution Mm. might be. And that's really, really hard to do under those circumstances. But if you have a series of empiric actions that you know seem to generally work pretty well to fix those problems, I think executing that action pattern very quickly could be helpful. Can you give us a definitive example from uh, industry not in healthcare? So in aviation, one of the examples I gave today is the response to inadvertent instrument meteorological conditions. So you basically get caught in a a situation where you can't see the ground, your visibility is very quickly reduced, and how you respond in that situation is very important. Hunting around and trying to come out of the clouds down to find the ground, you may find the ground a little quicker than you anticipated, Mm. uh, and that could potentially be very dangerous. So Uh, Executing emergency procedures to climb wings level, talk to somebody and get an IFR approach if you have that available is going to be very important. So that's, that's one particular one. There are, I would say, ample examples that the military has adopted over time to help soldiers and other operational personnel deal with very dangerous combat situations and whatnot. So I think there's actually quite a few. Yeah, we mm-hmm. talk about challenged bandwidth, but I don't think anything would challenge your
2: bandwidth as much as having some bullets whizzing by your head. You know?
1: so it is definitely very challenging in that sense, yeah.
3: I love the way, Mike, that you described it as those drills sort of teach you when to think, but also more importantly, when not to think and act mm-hmm. reflexively. Because You used that great example of the mnemonic dopes. I am so not one for mnemonics. You know, <laughs> I go into a set of drilled actions rather than mm-hmm. trying to think, Now, what did the D of DOPE stand for? Mm -hmm.
1: Right, and it's counterproductive in that situation because then you spend all of your time trying to remember what the acronym stood for or think about it while there's really an often a handful of things that commonly cause the problem and you can just act to fix them empirically.
4: It's the same for checklists, isn't it? We always say when when it's a real emergency you often haven't got time to go and get the big long checklist off the wall and work all the way through it. There's a time and a place for them. And as you highlighted beautifully that, you know, in this sort of situation, you need to just act on instinct and on your basic training.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a great example, citing the military experience, when you're getting shot at, it's not the right time to pull out a checklist and say, what do I do when I'm getting shot at? Mm -hmm. It's an instinctive set of actions that you immediately uh,
1: employ to save your life and to save your comrades lives. That's actually one of the things that that I always talk to people about is because the common misconception is that, well, you know, like pilots use checklists in emergencies. Well, they do, but if the plane's falling out of the sky actively, they don't necessarily default to the checklist. Once you can actually keep the thing in the air, yes, there are a series of emergency procedures that you can run through, and you absolutely should use a checklist, but there are definitely times where it's mm. not that helpful. Well, as you pointed to the double IMC, there's definitely a checklist for that, but you're not going to pull that
2: out. I mean, the first thing, they make the decision, let's get in the clouds, let's keep the wings level, and let's climb. Mm-hmm. And then pull out the checklist. Okay, you got to talk to center, you got to do all these other steps. But the initial reaction, yeah, has to be almost brainstem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's
5: aviate, navigate, communicate. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, another one of the lessons that was tantamount from the military is preventable deaths and exsanguination. Mark, your talk two years ago was a hit on um, pre-hospital massive bleeding. This year was an evolution on that talk. You want to give us some of the salient highlights?
4: Yeah, I, I think I'm always preaching to the converted with this audience, so it's a bit of a tough topic, <laughs> really, because you know, if there's <laughs> everyone in this audience that can't put a tourniquet on, they're in the wrong conference. <laughs> um, but uh, I think we, we tried to look at some of the, the other stuff that's out there, some of the stuff that's in the pipeline, and there were lots of things last year that had a huge question mark over them with no publications and no research, so I tried to revisit some of those. Some things, you know, we mentioned the, the X-DAC, we mentioned the IT clamp, you know, papers starting to come through, still small numbers, but, but information coming. And then we moved on to some of the other things. We talked a little bit about Vetigel. Sadly, still not seeing any publications, but then, as we mentioned, the Chinese paper that's come through looking at these new hydrogels, which activate with, with ultraviolet mm. and can actually seal and plug even a, a six millimeter stab wound in a heart. So, you know, there's some really exciting things coming through, which is not going to be a new trauma pack anytime in the next you know, few years. But, you know, it's where the horizon is going. Uh, but then we flipped it and went right back to simple things. And at the end of the day, it's down to stop the bleed. And that's what really matters at the moment. So I think it's nice to look at these things. But yeah, there's still a way off, a long way off. They may never come.
0: Yeah, critical interventions delivered in a timely manner, I think, was the uh, punchline. Yeah. Is, uh, you have to be extremely competent in the basics. And whether that's uh, wound packing and direct pressure, application of a tourniquet, that's essentially what's going to save lives. Now, regarding the IT clamp, I, f- I thought it was fascinating that you uh, discussed a paper where in head and neck trauma, it can actually be fairly effective.
1: Yeah, I mean,
4: uh, there were two aspects we looked at. We looked at the the use for massive hemorrhage control from uh, arterial bleeds in the thigh or the lower leg, and it performed really badly as compared to, say, a cat gate, which we treat as the standard of care. Um, but in contrast to that, um, we highlighted the fact that you know seven and a half percent of military uh, m- uh, wounds above the above the neck, um, neck and head, um, it results in high mortality. It showed that the uh, the IT clamp appears to work very very well in that group. Anything to do with scalp bleeds, neck bleeds, those typical wounds that are often quite difficult to pack or to get to or to manage, it does seem to work very well in that. I mean, there was I think they were quoting over four hundred, nearly five hundred cases mm. where it had been used effectively.
0: And what's the update on junctional hemorrhages?
4: So all of the junctional management tools, the, the, the SAM, the JET, the CROC, they, they all seem to be effective when you try them in the lab and in the training set scenario. When you come to use them for real, they're still heavy. They're bulky to look around. They take time to put on. There's clearly a training issue. There's, the skill fade comes quite quickly. And then the other big one was you come to move the casualty. They don't seem to stay in place. They don't seem to They do seem to move. The one that seems most popular anecdotally is, is the SAM. I've got no commercial interest there, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that seems to be the most popular in terms of application, and it does seem to stay more put than the others. And of course, it's a pelvic binder as well, which is another plus. Still a big question, and just packing uh, you know and, and, and keeping monitoring the casualty is probably more important.
0: One of the things that I found fascinating is, while we inherently all operate in a team environment, in terms of formal education... There's very little emphasis on leadership and how to operate effectively within a team. So our surgeon captain, Dr. Kate Pryor, delivered an excellent talk on leadership and how actually to step up to be a confident leader and help support your team through difficult and challenging times.
3: I'm particularly interested in inclusive leadership. I'm a training program director for civilian school of anesthesia and I have over fifty percent women. And I think women still struggle in healthcare because they don't necessarily see leaders and role models who they can aspire to be. You know, we work in an increasingly diverse environment with more black, Asian and minority ethnic people joining the workforce and staying in the workforce. And I think as leaders, we have to try and make people feel feel included and feel that they belong. Because I really think that helps that team cohesion, helps improving even retention of trained staff. You know, once you get somebody in and they feel happy and content. They sh- will hopefully stay with us.
2: Yeah, you were talking about some of the inherent bias. Uh, I had an interesting situation, one of our trauma resuscitations uh, a couple of weeks ago where one of our younger female residents was doing a great job. She was the trauma leader, calling everything right, yet things weren't going well. People weren't listening. And I, you know, the old white guy with the gray hair simply reiterated everything she said verbatim. And it was like, oh, you know, that, that's fine then, and, and they went on with it. But, yeah, it it does exist, most definitely.
3: I mean, it's a bit of a classic in healthcare. I mean, now I regularly get called nurse. You know, nursing is an incredible profession, and I'm not dissing my nursing colleagues at all, but there's such an ingrained, I think, stereotype in the population that women in healthcare are nurses, and the men are the doctors. Mm. And that's really not the case anymore.
2: But University of Wisconsin, or, you know, surgery is the last bastion of the old boys, We have, I believe, over 50% of the residents are women, and I think about 40% of the faculty. So it's really changing some dynamics.
3: Because we all have biases, of course we do. I'm not talking about the protected characteristics, age, race, gender, sex, sexual orientation, but it's those unconscious biases that I genuinely think we all have.
0: So continuing on, there was an incredible amount of information regarding resuscitation during the parallel session, both intubation, the use of whole blood, and the response in pediatric patients.
4: Yeah, Fabian gave an amazing talk where he questioned our whole timing of intubation in the the hypotensive polytrauma patient. He told a story of a case where I think we were all sitting there thinking, yeah, we'd tube that patient and then scoop and run. But in reality, he was saying, should we be adopting the the leaking AAA approach of get them into theatre, onto the table, get them prepped, draped, scalpel in hand for two reasons. One, the crash on induction with anaesthesia. But then the second thing, more importantly, he was stressing was the, the negative effects of ventilation. And that sort of effectively tamponade in the heart, or obstructive obstructing it as he described it. And so, yeah, it certainly raised some questions.
5: Yeah, and uh, Jacob's presentation on how to resuscitate uh, the the bleeding trauma uh, pediatric trauma patient was reinforcing to me. In that, uh, I felt better, and I felt I came out with uh, the 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 knowledge that I can use my adult knowledge for the pediatric patient, and just simply change um my amounts and and base it on weight 10 mils per kilo but otherwise Mm -hmm. the one-to-one-to-one the balanced hemostatic resuscitation in in addition to txa have evidence that they um work in the pediatric patient so it may it gave me comfort in a stressful situation i can fall back again on my drills and uh, simply resuscitate them like i would resuscitate uh, an adult patient which is what i know
0: now, Lani, you're very passionate about damage control resuscitation. Actually, you closed the conference. Tell us more about your approach to this type of critically ill patient.
5: So, well, it depends on, on your setting. Obviously, if you are in a low-resource setting, you may not be able to do what the literature suggests we you should be doing. Um, we know, you know, we're saying you should be giving blood, you should maintain hypotension until surgical um, control Um all of these uh, different things, but you might not be able to do that in a setting where you're going to be hours away from a surgeon or days away from a surgeon. We can't keep someone hypotensive indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, whole blood uh, is something that we're looking to because it might be um, logistically simpler to give, and there was evidence from Afghanistan that it, it, it was beneficial. However, that was warm whole blood. In, uh, in most civilian settings and, and in turn in the military as well, we're turning to cold blood, whole blood, and thinking it's the same, and it's probably not. And as well, I also learned in my master session moderating that we shouldn't be following blood pressure at all, that essentially the numbers are not irrelevant, but they are not as important as we think, that we should be looking more to things like like flow and uh and there uh, there are ways that we can be doing that maybe not things that are entirely prime time ready but at least things like ultrasound and in um, a low resource setting um, their color their um, skin temperature just by feel are they cold clammy do they appear shut down Um, as well as the trends of their um, vital signs not necessarily the absolute number
4: there were a lot of interesting things in that description i mean we've all suspected that you couldn't use blood pressure alone because time has never been included before. And then obviously there's the flow issue. There's the, the tissue oxygenation and, 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 and flow in the tissues, all those things add up. What makes everybody different? And, you know, we call it shock tolerance. You see that you know, every single person sitting here, every single person out there has got a different degree of shock tolerance.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: At the moment, we have no way of measuring that. And that was highlighted. The fact that you can have two almost identical patients. Um, and one of them could be shocked as more shocked in terms of blood pressure may be absolutely fine in terms of perfusion Mm. Uh, and at the moment we've no way of knowing that other than uh, as the line is just said, where you're just actually putting the whole picture together of what you see in front of you uh, rather than just a shock index or a lactate or whatever it may be
1: That was brilliant because I think it validates what a lot of us have seen where you have someone who is pale and clammy or mottled and tachycardic and then the non-invasive blood pressure says their blood pressure is 113 over something. Certainly not the time to stop resuscitating. And
0: with that, I think there's a ton more that we discuss, but we're going to take an opportunity to pause and enjoy dinner. And please join us again tomorrow for a wrap-up for Day 2 from Tactical Trauma, Sundsvall, Sweden.